No Gray Zone podcast is a frank and honest conversation on topics related to sexual abuse, harassment, child exploitation, and domestic and workplace violence. The opinions are our own, based on years of experience as special victims prosecutors. Any study, book, or product we mention is based on our own review and are not sponsored. Links and titles can be found in the podcast notes. You can also learn more at rightresponseconsulting.com. Listener discretion is advised. I'm just good at caring too much. I'm just good at caring too much. Is it too much to ask that you be all mine? I never was good at sharing. I'm just good at caring. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Marsh. And I'm Melissa Hopmeyer. And this is No Gray Zone Podcast. Today, we are extremely honored to have the Prout family with us. Chessie, Susan, and Alex are survivors. And I say all of them are survivors. Not to take away from Chessie and the amazing woman she is, but because we know when sexual assault and harassment occur, it can actually harm every single member of the family. And the entire family as a unit is impacted. But Chessie, her parents and siblings are warriors and have created a battle cry, I have the right to. Chessie is a survivor of sexual assault and her trial played out on the national stage. She then wrote a book, I have the right to, and she is absolutely correct. Chessie and all survivors have the right to be heard, to be believed, and to be supported. But the battle cry didn't end with the book or in the courtroom. Her parents, Susan and Alex, created the advocacy organization, I Have the Right To, and even relocated to Washington, D.C. in order to advocate nationally and push for much needed change in the law. So, Chessie, Susan, and Alex, welcome to No Gray Zone. Thank you so much for having us today. Yes, thank you. We're so glad to be with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, we are thrilled. Chessie, Melissa and I are inspired and encouraged by survivors every day. In fact, I read a quote today that said, it's not what they take away from you that counts. It's what you do with what's left. And Jesse, what you've done with all the amazing talents you have is truly awe-inspiring. But we know it's often difficult for survivors to proceed criminally and or civilly. So what made you and your family decide, I'm going to take legal actions against both St. Paul's, your school, and your abuser, Owen Lapry? Well, I think personally, in the days following my assault with my decision to call my mom and then go to the hospital and talk to the police, initially stemmed from the fact that I knew that I, I knew that I was not alone in the pain that I had experienced at the hands of this young man. And I had had multiple other girls come to me and say either he had done that to them or their friends. And so with that encouragement behind me. I knew that if it wasn't me standing up against him, that it would have to be some other person along the line. And I didn't want him to have the ability to do this to anybody else ever again. So I wanted to focus on, you know, what was in my power and in my control at the time. And that was going forward and using the criminal justice system available to me at the time to seek justice. And then coming forward as a family publicly later, when St. Paul's School challenged my anonymity and our suit against them was a completely different story because after the trial had happened for, against my assailant, um, the state of New Hampshire versus my assailant, 
my name was leaked on the internet through these hate sites that are out there meant to out survivors of sexual assault. And our address was put on the internet, our phone numbers, email addresses, pictures of me and my younger sister and my older sister, rape threats, death threats, um, all these different things on the internet. And so when my older sister was trying to, you know, apply for jobs and internships, the first thing that you see when you type in the name Chessie Prout or Lucy Prout was the St. Paul School slut. That's what the headline was. So part of the reason why I especially encouraged to come forward publicly was, first of all, the support that I had from my parents and them allowing me to make this decision on my own with their support and with their input, of course, but also the fact that my name was already out there in the public and I wanted to reclaim my name, reclaim the internet as a space of positivity instead of bashing and victim shaming. So yeah, that was the initial inspiration for coming forward. Yeah, I think one, one thing to add there is in terms of, you know, this has been a learning, learning journey for all of us. And it's something that applied to, you know, this whole process of trying to look after Chessie's well-being was Susan and my sort of first and only sort of mission through this. And then making sure that the young man would not ever be in a position to do this again to someone else. And as we learn more through the evidence gathering process about what this young man had done and what he'd been doing behind the scenes, and then we learned about the games at the school, the sexual predatory games that um, had taken place for years at the school, we began to try to dig further and saying what, what was wrong with the culture and the environment at the school, not only this young man, the perpetrator. And then through that learning process, you know, we heard the school tell us, oh, this is an isolated incident. The school culture is fine and strong. There's nothing wrong at the school. But, you know, through Chessie's bravery and speaking up, other victims felt empowered to speak, you know, their truth. And slowly but surely, we started learning about all of these other stories of abuse taking place at the school going back decades. So, you know, following the same vein that we did not want this to happen to anyone else, we, you know, tried to uh, engage the school and say, what about these different things that we've learned through Chess's experience, through others' experiences, and there was complete denial. And, you know, our girls tried to present the school with a list of things to improve so other girls wouldn't be assaulted on campus. Um, and if they were, they'd be supported better than Chessie was um, supported. And the school refused to even engage with us in terms of um, a conversation about how to improve, you know, issues at the school. So that's when, you know, we felt there was, you know, no other course to pursue, but, you know, bring a civil suit against the school because, you know, we were learning assaults were continuing at the school. They had been taking place there. And I think what we've learned since has supported the fact that we did file the lawsuit. You know, there's a compliance officer embedded at the school. The Department of Justice of New Hampshire has found the school criminally negligent and negotiated the settlement with the school. And the school continues to be in denial that there is an issue of rape culture there. You know, we've learned the definition of a complicit institution and felt the reality of, of institutional betrayal as well. Yeah. And, and I want to ask a little bit more about St. Paul, Alex. I know that your your family had, you know, a legacy there. You you went there and your, your older daughter went there. And so how difficult was it experiencing this and knowing that they're just basically closing their eyes to a problem that is not just you know, a problem that Chessie encountered, but a problem that so many women who have come across that this have encountered. 
it, it was a tough, you know, journey, as you can imagine, because, you know, I was a scholarship kid at St. Paul's, was able to take advantage of an amazing opportunity there. And it helped shape my life going forward in terms of my business career and ultimately my family life. And we entrusted the school with, you know, our daughters. We were living overseas and this seemed like a safe place for our girls to go to high school in preparation for university in the U.S. So this was um, to learn about the experiences my daughters faced. And a lot of this I learned during the criminal trial was, was a shock. And then more so afterwards in terms of how the school handled what happened to my daughter and then learning that they had been covering up and hiding and not only covering up and hiding, but intentionally steamrolling victims into silence and isolation and shame was it, it was the ultimate betrayal of a lot of faith that I'd put into an institution. But I've learned a lot during the process. You know, a wonderful person, Dr. Freed, you know, I learned that we, we shouldn't be giving human attributes to institutions, right? You know, so the loyalty and affection we feel for institutions is really never, you know, returned, right? So what I learned was, you know, St. Paul's was a corrupt and bankrupt institution. The, the words that they used in their prayer books and on their websites were window dressing. And the school was hiding a 70 year history of, of sexual assault and abuse and corruption. So it, it to me is, is correct that the Department of Justice is overseeing the school right now. What amazes me though, is that the broader school community hasn't stood up and demanded things to change or be shut down. Absolutely. You know, you, you touched on a couple of things there. Silence, we always say is, an abuser and a rapist best friend, right? Sexual assault thrives on silence and on no gray zone. We we spend a lot of time talking about the need to have these conversations, to talk about consent and to talk about consent early and often to have national conversations about sexual assault, to call out the behavior when we see it. Alex, what you were mentioning about like the school as a whole and the school community as a whole, not calling it out is still enabling these kinds of behaviors and rape culture in general. So I'm going to ask a two-part question, which I know as an attorney, I should never do, but I'm going to anyway. Chessie, the first part's going to be for you. And then Susan, I'll, I'll have a second part for you to follow up. So looking at the senior salute practice that occurred at St. Paul's, which I I love some of the evidence in the case, although the school was like, it's just a friendly, you know, rite of passage, although your abuser in his text message described it as, and I want to make sure I get the quote correct. So an eight week exercise in debauchery, a probing exploration of the innermost meanings of the word sleazebag. That's how those participating in the senior salute described it. What role do you believe this practice and this acceptance by the school played in your assault and the likely assault of others? And then Susan, if you could just follow up because of your work in the advocacy world and everybody that you work with now, what role do you think gender stereotypes and societal myths and influences play in rape culture generally? I mean, I was sexually assaulted on my first week first day at school, actually, when I was 14. And I didn't know that what had happened to me was sexual assault then. Of course, then I was raped when I was 15 in the spring of my freshman year of high school. But at a school dance, the first night of school, a boy came up behind me and stuck his hands inside my pants and tried to fondle my my private area. And 
I didn't even have the strength of mind to say, what the hell? No, get away from me. I thought that I had to be docile, polite. And so I grabbed my friend and did what the dorm head had taught us to do before going to this dance, which is make up a signal with your friend, your girlfriends and say, take me to the bathroom. Tell me you have to go to the bathroom so you can get me out of this uncomfortable situation. That wasn't an uncomfortable situation. That was a complete violation of my personal boundaries, physical boundaries. And, you know, it was institutionalized that these older boys and other boys would put masks on their faces to hide themselves during these dances as they came up to girls behind. And teachers were standing above watching this all happen. And I went and asked or talked to my advisor who I, or dorm head, who I really trusted and had a great relationship with and told him that this boy had been going up to girls around once we were in the bathroom, all the girls were like, that guy was sticking his hands in everyone's pants, right? Like he did that to you too. Oh my gosh. Like, what are we going to do about this? And so I talked to my dorm head and he basically said, there's not much you can do about it. And I think that really speaks volumes to, you know, this is a trusted adult who has, you know, since been very kind to our family. And, and yet he still, even the best of adults at these places couldn't even recognize what sexual assault was and how to protect and empower their young women to stand up against sexual assault in a place that's supposed to be their home, in a place where they're supposed to feel safe. And I think that speaks volumes to the culture that existed there too, and, and might definitely still exist there of you know silence and keeping us quiet and staying down low and sticking to the status quo so that we can climb on the backs of the alumni there, which is you know, what what the culture was kind of like. It was like a social climate culture. And I mean, this whole elitist world of education is a mess. And it's, yeah, I, there's so much to say on that. The unfairness of boarding schools and the elitist like abilities that that gives you to go to these expensive elitist places. And there's been a lot of change recently since the Me Too movement in 2016. I think people are starting to become more openly advocates for consent and, you know, for survivors, but all of that open public support doesn't really translate to the private sphere. Like I, I think that no amount of social media posts or bringing in speakers to talk about this issue is matters at all, unless you're practicing it with your students, with your friends, with your family. And I think that is the true sign of how right a school is family is and friends are. So Susan on rape culture in general, and you know, how we have some of these societal myths and influences and the gender stereotype of the guy pursuing. And as Jesse said, the girls to be docile or they're the ones who are responsible to have to get themselves away or to have a sign with a friend of how to get help. What do you think that is just generally in our culture with regard to how this allows, you know, sexual assault to continue? Right. Well, I think it's been an amazing journey, an educational journey for us. You know, we had entrusted St. Paul School with our, our hearts, our children. And I thought I had raised these truly international girls who could survive anywhere. I had no idea the kind of culture we were sending them into, but I realize now how prevalent it is. The whole idea of what it means to be a successful young man who, you know, is certainly at St. Paul's school, they encourage everyone to play three sports, to be academic. 
And so what we found is that a lot of these young people are very adept at kind of having a dual dual personalities. They present themselves as very polite. In fact, some of the perpetrators, slave makers, were shaking my hand in the week and the days before they assaulted, uh, before Owen Labrie assaulted Chessie. They were shaking my hand knowing they'd been sending terrible emails about this plan, which really, to this day, really still shakes me to think that someone could be that duplicitous. And then, you know, when we got to through the court hearing and heard some of the language that they used in the emails, which were straight from culture, our our, uh, media culture, where they took this popular comic, Bo Burnham, who they've adopted his language that was denigrating women in these emails. And, And that words matter. The words they see and hear in movies and TV shows matter. Now, Bo Burnham has turned around and done a couple of interesting things in media with middle school, the film about sexual assault in middle school and um, difficulties there. And he played a father in that, I believe. And then he was in A Promising Young Woman. So, you know, I'd like, I'd really like to ask him what he thinks of his earlier days and the influence he had on my daughter's perpetrator. So I think the other issue that we've realized, you know, because there's so many survivors that come to us and tell us their stories is that we're seeing a general problem, the raising of our boys. They are not taught how to be fully human, compassionate people. They are told you must succeed in this world and you have to beat or be beaten down. So this type A successful kind of persona is just, it really doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work for them. It doesn't work for society at large. So we're really interested in how we can help boys and their male role models just kind of understand that they're selling themselves short when they're not learning to be compassionate, um, empathetic, communicative people. And that's, you know, of course, consent education is a big focus on I have the right to. And we think proper consent education programs in schools would address that, how to act better in relationships and how to be better partners. So yes, we have a real cultural problem with how we're raising young men in this, in our society, I think. And it's at a great cost. I couldn't agree with you more. I think so much of what Catherine and I see in our work is a real lack of understanding of, of consent and what, you know, why you should give somebody body autonomy. And there's this idea that if you're, you know, if you're an athlete or you're a male, you have to be aggressive. And if you're not aggressive, then you're you're not a man. Um, And that creates this rape culture and we're, we're, you know, stuck, Um, We're stuck in this endless cycle because I I think then, you know, society as a whole doesn't understand it. And so then these men are are not held accountable like they should be. And then we just kind of perpetuate it. And I know that that's one of the the, the biggest take homes that you guys had and in creating your foundation. Um, So can you just talk a little bit about what work you guys are doing with men to try to change the, the narrative? Sure. That's a that's a great question. Well, one of the schools that we've partnered with locally here in Washington, D.C., in the DMV area has been Georgetown Day School. And I'll be honest, as a survivor's mother, I was terrified to let Chessie speak at their first summit. I said, why would you want to put yourself out there in front of your peers who've done nothing but not support you to this point? You don't need to do that. And she so bravely stepped forward and told her account 
to these students and a, a room filled with boys and uh, girls, male teachers and female teachers. And by the end of the day, we had so many students putting signs of support. I have the right to on the walls, as she mentions in her, as Jesse mentions in her book. So GDS has started a group called Boys Leading Boys. And we are thrilled to see them do that. There are boys that plan the sexual assault and consent summit there. We definitely try to support them in all their endeavors that they do there uh, at the summit. We also have like lots of dreams about trying to inspire young men to aspire to be stronger humans. You see kind of comments worldwide now, Australia is having a moment right now with consent education and sexual assault in the government. And there's this huge social uprising asking for consent education schools. And the prime minister actually ended up saying publicly, well, my wife reminded me that I have three daughters and how would I feel if one of my daughters was in the position to be sexually assaulted like his colleague was? And that just begs the question, you don't have to have daughters to care about this. You should care about this because we're talking about our humanity. And you know, we felt part of our goals that I have the right to have been to remind people not to trivialize sexual assault. It, so many people thought it was a rite of passage for their children. They said, well, I went through it. Grandma went through it. It's just something that happens. And that is the most minimizing comment I can imagine, because short of murder, sexual assault is that devastating because someone is taking something from you that they have no right to take from you. So, you know, our goal is number one, to shine the light on sexual assault in high schools. When this terrible thing happened to Chessie, we were focusing on colleges So it was time to shift the focus to high schools and frankly, even middle schools now. So the other way we focus on young men is to teach them consent. So if schools are too afraid, boards of education are too afraid, uh, parents are too afraid of teaching sex ed, well then we'll come in and teach you consent education and healthy relationships. So that's the number one thing. And I think, frankly, it should be a K through 12 effort to teach consent education. And guess what? If boards of education aren't going to keep up with this momentum, then we will do it offline. We will do it through our organization, through other partnerships with community members, because this is too important. And we feel its ripple effect in our society is too important and too big you know, to have this respectful kind of interaction between people. I think it would solve, solve a lot of our ills if we could get this education down. Hopefully reduce some of your work. <laughs> we would appreciate that. And I couldn't agree more. I'm a mom of three boys. And I, I tell my children all the time, my most important job is to turn you into a good human. You can not like me any given day of the week because you don't like the job I'm doing, turning you into a good human but that's my job. And I can't have my boys be good humans. If I don't teach them about healthy relationships, if I don't teach them about body autonomy and about consent at no gray zone, we have your back 150% on K through 12. We quite frankly would like it to start at preschool. We know that consent doesn't have to equal sex. Consent is a conversation we should be having from the very beginning that 
you have body autonomy, whether you want to give somebody a hug goodbye, you want to engage in tickling or wrestling or any kind of other physical activity, you have the right to say no. So we encourage that 100%. We also know that this work, as much as it is, will be turning good humans, it will also help educate jurors because realistically, the statistics on sexual assault convictions in this country are abysmal. It's about seven out of every 1,000. And it's not a statistic that Melissa and I are proud of as prosecutors. It basically is one of the worst stats we could have. But we know that can change the more we talk about it, the more we teach consent, the more we have foundations and organizations like I have the right to advocating for change. But there was some good news in your case. And, and you did get a conviction. Wasn't to the top count, but you did get convictions. So what was it like coming to through the whole criminal trial process and actually knowing a jury could sit there and say, we find him guilty? My first thought was, they believe me. That meant the world to me to have a group of people peers, community members say, we believe you. And to help me seek justice or find a little bit of justice was amazing. Well, of course, no conviction, no sentencing, no nothing can ever fix or change or help me, you know, you know remove the pain and remove the trauma that he had inflicted on me. And in fact, the trial was traumatizing experience in and of itself that has left me with lots of different PTSD that I still have to deal with to this day. I mean, I, I don't know, being able to be told that my pain, I know I shouldn't like put all of my hopes and dreams on the criminal justice system, but hearing from a jury, hearing from a judge that he knew that my assailant was a very good liar was affirming to me um, and to be able to know that they believed me to be able to know that they saw through his charade it really gave me hope and it kind of reaffirmed my faith in humanity <laughs> in a way because I had been like knocked down and and kicked so many times by my peers by the school by you know people trolls on the internet so yeah I mean there are so many different ways that I can see the criminal justice system improving. And in fact, I've actually gone to many conferences where we've discussed the different things that the courtroom, physical courtroom can look like to help survivors um, when they testify and to protect them and to protect their anonymity, but also to make sure that they don't have to walk past the perpetrator's family, walk over their family members, the defense table before going to their side of the bench in the, in the courtroom. Um, simple stuff like that to make it a much less traumatizing experience for victims, you know, is something that I'm passionate about going forward now. Having had to put so many victims and survivors on the stand, I, I know how difficult it is. We, you know, spend a lot of time going into the courtroom just so that you can look at it and get a sense of, you know, where you're going to sit, where I'm going to stand, where the judge is going to be, all of those things, because it's really difficult, you know, and I think a lot of times I'll tell juries when I'm, when I'm doing my, my closing argument, 
you know, imagine telling the most intimate moment of your life to a courtroom full of strangers. And now imagine that that most intimate moment was one that you did not wish to happen and that you, you know, that was not what you wanted. And, you know, how, how do you think you would feel sitting in this, in this jury box? Cause it is really, really hard. And, you know, he was, Labrie was convicted and he did receive, a, I think, a three 12 month consecutive sentence in part because the judge felt like he was a follower and that he was a good kid. And I think that's kind of a stereotype that we've seen play out in the media time and time again. So do you guys feel that that sentence was just and do you think that the court sometimes put too much emphasis on the defendant's future and not on the crime and the impact that that ha- that the crime had on Chessie. I, I don't think any amount of punishment is, especially in this case, is you know optimal because no amount of jail time is going to make him or make him realize that what he did was wrong, that he should be sorry, and that he should seek help and actually get professional help to help him deal with whatever traumas led him to become a. A sexual assaulter. So I think that there needs to be an, another option for the community to come together and heal after things like this. And, you know, that's just my two cents because I, I, I don't know. I, I think there needs to be another way for people to heal after being assaulted and also after assaulting somebody else, um, because obviously there's something wrong there. I, I'll say one thing, and I know you have some comments, Alex, but I, one thing that was so important to us was a psychosexual examination. And we never felt like that was accomplished because of those very concerns that Chessie had. He was a repeat perpetrator. We had found out the other victims did not want to come forward. And we had heard other issues had part, been part of his, you know, his life. So, I mean, it was very, it was great to hear that the jury was supportive of Chessie in some ways. And it meant a great deal to us to hear the judge say, clearly, Chessie did not consent. And had we had a law that stated what consent was, there would have been a very different outcome, perhaps. But Alex, what is would you like to share? (laughs) Yes, I have a lot of conflicting feelings on this because I've seen directly the impact of this crime. Um, on my daughter, on my other two daughters, and on our entire family. So, you know, from that perspective, you know, there, there was not punishment that was severe enough for this young man to face and accountability because, you know, I've learned that the purpose of our criminal justice system is twofold, right? One is to provide that accountability and then also to provide deterrence to others not to, you know, face the similar sort of consequences. Well, there was an absolute failure on both fronts here, right? Um, you know, he got, I think, six months he had to actually serve in incarceration. And there was a lot of over-consideration about, you know, the impact to him. And I, so I do agree with your initial statement. There's way too much focus on the perp, not the impact on, on the victims. And in terms of, you know, deterrence, we're not creating a deterrence in our society for this crime. Uh, what we're setting is is actually the opposite. That you know, nine thousand or excuse me, what was the statute said? So nine hundred, you know, uh, ninety three times you're going to get away with it, right? Without any consequence. So those are odds that you know, if you're a perp, you're going to say, hey, it, the odds are in my in my favor. I would also like to focus on the waste 
that this is all created. This young man theoretically had a future. He is now a sexual, a registered sexual offender uh, for the rest of his life. You know, I would hope it's someday that he would be more thoughtful because I'm told he was a quite an intelligent kid before with some potential and he squandered it. And he could prov provide an example to others by speaking up and saying, oh my gosh, what, what mistakes I made. Um, I hope others learn from this. You know, we are out every day trying to help other families not go through what we went through. And I would love as much as, as difficult as it would be for me to interact with any perp, I would love to challenge some perps to come forward and, and speak, you know, speak up in terms of, you know, regrets that they have and trying to set an example for others. It's hard. I, I look at one, just how generous your family is being and, and looking at the fact that it, his future has been changed a bit too. Part of it is, you know, as I researched the whole case, I looked at the fact that he continued to violate curfew after the conviction over and over and over again, even after being given a break by the court and had to be locked up because of his continued violations. And I don't know if it was arrogance. I don't know if it was still not grasping the seriousness of it because of the fact that so often there's no real penalties for sexual assault. It's, it's kind of mind blowing to think that there were continued violations after that. I know that every jurisdiction is different in the jurisdiction I practice in. We're told that sentencing has four parts and it is punishment. It is deterrence, but it's also rehabilitation and restitution. And so for us, when we have any sexual assault or uh, case or child sexual abuse case, a part of sentencing is always ordering that psychosexual because we do need to look at rehabilitation. And sometimes, you know what, rehabilitation is going to have to start in prison. And sometimes it'll start in parole or probation. And I think we do have to recognize that without having a rehabilitation component, we're not treating an underlying problem. And Chessie, your grace in recognizing that there needs to be some other way as well and consideration for, you're more generous than I am of saying his trauma and assaulting, but your grace in looking at that it is really telling. And I think it goes to why we know your jury didn't, your journey didn't end with the trial, that you've continued to speak out on this and you wrote, I have a right to, and you have created this advocacy organization. But what was the process like of writing the book? Well, at first, the publishers wanted the book by available by fall of 2017, which would, would have meant that I started writing in the winter slash spring of my senior year of high school. And thank God my mom and my co-author drew the line and said, no, let her have a regular ending to high school. And I did. I had an amazing year with my supportive friends in Florida. I, it was incredible. But then we were moving that summer. And so I started writing the book after graduation with Jen Abelson who was the Boston Globe um, Spotlight investigative journalist. And now she works at the Washington Post here in DC. So we're much closer now, which is amazing. But yeah, every day we went through archives, um, my diary, notebooks, my planner from school, because I used to write in the margins whenever I was having 
you know, anxiety or panic attacks in class. I would also write in my planner during class when I was at St. Paul's, when I was trying to get together my first victim impact statement during the first round of, you know, pleas and all this, all that crazy legal stuff. So we went through, she went through the court filings, different interviews with different witnesses. She also went out of her way and interviewed friends of mine, um, different people. Jen did the heavy lifting of the archival work so that I didn't have to really revisit as much of the trauma as I wanted to, um, which was really helpful because I, I had done a lot of therapy before where I revisited the, you know, events of my assault to try to, you know, stop disassociating when it comes to different physical things that would happen afterwards. But yeah, it was, we sat together, wrote, 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 used a lot of Google documents. um, And in, I think three, three or four months, we finished the entire manuscript, had to cut like three chapters out of it because we wrote too much, but there was too much of my life that I wanted to incorporate into it to remind readers and anybody that I'm not just a survivor of sexual assault. I'm not just what had had been done to me. I had a full life beforehand and I'm going to continue to have a full life afterwards. And I'd actually been through a lot of stuff in my childhood and growing up that prepared me in some strange way for my assault when I was 15. You know, in 2011, there was the big Tohoku earthquake in Japan and I'd grown up there in, in Tokyo since I was six months old. And so in 2011, we fled to the United States, thought we'd be going back within a couple of weeks, weeks turned into months. And eventually I had to start a new school in the U.S. for the first time ever. And that was something that taught our family to how to kind of stick together and um, come together during rough times, even though I, as a 12 year old turning 13 year old was probably a nightmare, but also I was just so angry at my parents for taking me from my home that I loved. I love everything about Japan and I loved growing up there. And so I was facing a lot of anxiety and depression from a young age. And I think a lot of it, you know, a lot of it I had experienced, I had experienced since I was very young. And so I, started meeting with a therapist at age 13, a therapist that I still see to this day. And including that in the book was really important to me, um, including the pre-assault, my attempts at self-harm and my suicidal ideations that I had experienced beforehand was really important because it goes to show, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect victim. And that, you know, no matter what you've gone through in your life, it doesn't negate the amount of justice that you are, you have the right to receive and you have the right to seek after a sexual assault. So no matter what you have done in your life, there's nothing that you can ever, ever do to deserve to be sexually assaulted. And so including, you know, everything about my life and my family and good experiences, bad experiences was really important to include in the book. And it was a great experience. And I'm really it was really grateful to be able to go on a book tour afterwards around the United States. And I also went and spoke to companies um, and schools in Japan, Hong Kong, and Australia. While my dad was on his business trips, I tagged along and, and found ways to speak to people there. And to be able to speak to parents and children who've gone through the same thing and to hear and see the look on their face that you get when you meet another survivor who you know knows our experiences are not the same. They're, they're all different. 
but somehow we just connect on a level that, you know, is just a level of deep love and empathy um, for the pain that we've experienced. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, you know, it's so important, I think, for survivors and for families of survivors to know that there are other people out there who have had similar experiences um, and who who you can talk to in a different way than you can talk to someone who hasn't experienced it. And I think, you know, your family putting themselves out there so much and talking about the pain that you've been through and the triumphs that you've been through since all of this. Can you talk a little bit about why it was so important for you guys to move to the DC area and start this advocacy organization? I have the right to, because after the trial, after the book, it could have been very easy for you guys to be like, you know what, we've done enough. We're going to move on with our lives, but you guys have to give back. I'm going to jump in on this one because we've moved a lot in our lives. I won't tell you the exact number because then people might think we're very flaky, but <laughs> we have moved a lot. It's 16. And so in the meantime, I, I just looked at my family and I said, you know what? I, we've always wanted to live in the DMV area. My husband went to Georgetown. My eldest daughter was, a, uh, uh, I think, a freshman that, there. And one day she looked at me and said, I wish you lived around the corner, mom. And this from a child who's been away at boarding school since she was 15. And I said, we can make that happen. And we, so we moved here because also the other advocacy groups, they're all young people here. There, there are no people, certainly are, my husband's in my age, out there supporting them. And that didn't seem right to me that all these young people, survivors, are staffing groups like End Rape on Campus or Serve Justice or, you know, the Know You're Nine, the myriad groups out there. And so I think the first week we came here, we were out protesting Betsy DeVos's change, changes to Title IX. And I brought my 80-year-old aunt with us. And I said, this is right. We should be out here supporting these young people and these changes. So we've been so glad to move here because there's such, such a synergy with so many different people who want to make the world a better place. We work with a bunch of different organizations, including Vital Voices, which I love. And you know, it just feels like the right place to try to make change. And of course, meeting people like you makes our day. <laughs> yeah, if you can think about the fact that we, we faced a, a traumatic event with what happened to Chessie. And, you know, normally if a family is facing a traumatic event with one of their kids, you know, typically you see casseroles being delivered to your house, um, rallying and support happen. And we, we felt we actually experienced the opposite. We faced hostility. We faced some indifference, but mostly hostility. And, you know, from a community that I, I felt very close to in terms of St. Paul's, you know, school. And we felt, felt the general ignorance about sexual violence, you know, generally. People not understanding it and the impact and the prevalence, you know, of it. So... In D.C., somehow, it was the first time that we experienced the feeling of a safe and supportive community. And we just all looked at each other on a visit up here to, to meet a group that wanted to honor Chessie together for girls. And we just looked at each other and said, oh, my gosh, between Georgetown Day School, Together for Girls, Vital Voices, etc., let's let's move here. Let's make this our home. And... It just opened up my eyes to the, the stark difference and it made me, made, frankly, maybe a little bit upset because of 
what could be possible in a community like St. Paul's. You know, and we look at the perps, you know, normally when we, we look at gender-based violence, we don't look enough at the institutions that enable rape culture to exist. You know, what we learned through this experience is that hurt people hurt people. And this young man had been damaged earlier in his life. But the, the ecosystem that he was living in was like a Petri dish that was very supportive to perpetrators or emerging perpetrators because of the corrupt nature of, of the denial culture, the, the active support of, of sexual abuse, the school. And this to me is something that is highly addressable and fixable. You know, the, these power imbalances that we allow to exist. And when you combine power imbalances with the misogyny that exists in our society, you have the objectification of, of women and, and then this mistreatment that's allowed to go on. You know, this is what I think, Susan, and my main mission is, you know, whatever way we can do it, is to just stop this nonsense. And if it means holding institutionals accountable, so be it. If we need to set examples to bring change, then we'll set examples. The good-natured work of, of my better half in terms of educating and raising awareness, then that's a preferred, you know, course. But come hook or crook, we need to, br- we need to bring change. Absolutely. And one, we're thrilled that you guys are now in our neighborhood uh, <laughs> and working so hard on this change. So let's talk a little bit about how we might be able to do that. Chessie, looking back, what is one thing you wish all students and young people would know that you didn't know or that wasn't told to you prior to the assault? First, the definition of consent and what it means to you as an individual, not just what consent is, but how you can use it and apply it in your own life. And secondly, definitions of what sexual assault are and your rights as a human being to your own body. I think that the harm of knowing that bad things happen is much less than the harm of actually undergoing those bad things. So I think, you know, it's worthwhile for all of us to educate ourselves on what sexual assault is, how it impacts a person, and, you know, what we can do to stop it. Absolutely. And so Alex and Susan, uh, a similar but different question for you. What do you wish that all parents knew or do you want them to know about, you know, if, if their child comes to them and reports a sexual assault? Well, first of all, to recognize that if your child comes to you and says they've been sexually assaulted, the first thing you need to do is tell them that you believe them and that you're there for them. The details at that moment don't matter. There should be no questioning of what did you do or why did this happen? Because those are devastating for a survivor to hear, I can imagine. And it just so happened that because it was the middle of the night when you called me and I had, you know, a y- your younger sister next to me and a, my mother was ill across the hall. Those are the only words I could get out at that moment. So I would just emphasize to parents, you know, yes, this is devastating news, but talking to your survivor about those details is not productive at that moment, because it's, it's been a huge step for them to come forward and talk to you and recognize that as such. And I think that I just wish all parents knew that acquaintance rape is a very, very prevalent thing and that they should really understand it's not the stranger in the bush assault. 
that, but that it's more often acquaintances that our children have to be cognizant of. And, and that was something we felt that people just didn't understand when Chessie was assaulted. Yeah, for, for me, it is very practical. You know, I wish that I had known and I would want all parents to know that, that perpetrators have a very well established and highly refined playbook to get out of accountability and responsibility for their bad acts. We had no idea that such a playbook existed, how refined it was, and we were utterly unprepared for what we were about to face. And, and maybe it was a good thing because we were very naive in terms of saying we, we need to do the right thing. And it's our duty, you know, to support Chessie through, you know, through the criminal justice process. I would like to let parents know that we, we need to band together to form our own playbook and, you know, how to let parents know there, there are definite ways to do it. Susan said probably one of the most critical things about that initial conversation with your child. But then after that is, you know, be focused on the well-being of your child and that justice can take any different shapes or forms. I just had a conversation with another father of a victim and it was a heartbreaking conversation, but, you know, had to walk and talk to him about that the most important thing, despite any urges that you might have, instinctive urges to take some actions, that first and foremost, you need to look after the well-being of your, of your daughter. And that justice isn't defined, you know, by anyone else other than your daughter and your family together. And, you know, healing is important. And then justice can be driven in any number of different ways. But it has to be within the healing process of, um, of your loved one. To me, we, we need to make people aware of what their rights are when, when they enter this process. And, you know, because things are so much stacked up against anyone who speaks up about this kind of crime. That is true. But in the vein of banding together, what are some of the current goals for I Have a Right To? And how can people band together and get involved? Well, it just so happens to take up what Alex was saying. We are trying to call together parents because it's going to take all stakeholders in our community to affect change. So one of the first steps is talking to parents and organizing along goals of what we expect from our schools, you know, how we expect our schools to handle complaints of sexual assault, and then some basic education on to parents of how to recognize that a survivor's journey is not linear, just to offer support for one another. That has not existed. It took us maybe, I don't know, maybe four years or excuse me, maybe three years to talk to another survivor's family. We were completely isolated and that's really not healthy. So, you know, we'd like to offer support to parents so that survivors aren't, you know, so many young people are afraid of how their family is going to react and they're so afraid that they're going to destroy, you know, any equilibrium in their family. So providing support for parents and, and we can all do that. You know, it doesn't cost anything to do that. So that's one um, very present goal. And, and then asking schools to be more accountable. And we feel that, you know, from high schools through colleges. Um, but first in high schools, we have to have schools do more programming. And then that has to come by asking the, the consumer, the parent to demand these programs at school. 
And that's something that we're trying a, a bunch of different avenues to do that with. We'll have lots of information about our goals on the website. If anyone's listening to this and wants to join our efforts to please reach out to us through our website and also on our social media. Yeah, we're, we're looking for also, you know, ideas because as you dive into this topic, there's so many different directions, you know, to go to. I mean, we, we tend to look at this in terms of the, the ecosystem that, that sort of surrounds this topic and the constituents. And, you know, obviously you, you, you have, you know, our kids that we need to provide sort of awareness and education and give them the tools. And, and you know, Susan's doing a lot of great work with a lot of great experts in, in terms of consent, awareness and education. But, you know, when we look at the journey through and we look at the headlines, we, we've seen this in our schools, we see it in our clubs, in our social organizations, athletic organizations, and in the workplace. And, and you know, I, I'm bringing this conversation as uncomfortable as it is into the corporate world and, and saying we, we need to address this topic in the workplace as well. Chessie referred to some of the speaking we did in, in Asia uh, when I was um, based out there. And we initially thought we would be addressing my colleagues and, and peers because they would be sort of emerging parents and they would be facing this issue with their children. What became evident from the very first session that we did in Sydney, Australia, and looking at the faces of the audience, it was immediately obvious that this was a topic that was touching my colleagues and peers. And we had any number of people come forward and tell us their Me Too stories uh, on the sidelines after our different speaking engagements. And, and that was eye-opening. So, you know, we have work to do in every area of our ecosystem. And, you know, if we're talking about consent and healthy relationships in our schools, in our workplace, imagine with a common language, Imagine the conversations we can bring back to the dinner table and have with our kids about respect, integrity, healthy relationships. And, and these are skill sets. You know, I'm working with a wonderful gentleman, Don McPherson, and his concept of aspirational masculinity. It can be amazing the impact we can, we can make if we you know, start making this a positive tool that we actually you know, carry with us as a, as a positive element in and Don refers to it as the concept of recruitment to employment, right? Um, imagine if we can start, you know, teaching our kids this, have them be trained and then, you know, progress through higher education and then workplace. You know, we, we can really make a lasting impact if we do that. We couldn't agree more. And we could talk to you guys all day, but we know it's getting late. So that is all the time that we have for today. If you want to learn more about I Have the Right To, you can go to their webpage, IHaveTheRightTo.org, and we'll have all of this in our uh, podcast notes. You can buy the book, I Have the Right To, and you can follow them also on social media at I Have the Right To on Facebook and Instagram, and I Have the Right To on Twitter. Chessie, Susan, and Alex, it's been a pleasure having you. And any final thoughts? Thank you so much for shining the light on sexual assault in your podcast. It's really a dream come true to know people in your position are working so hard to change things. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Well, thank you guys so much for being with us. I do encourage everybody to go to the website. Nothing else. Take 30 seconds to read the I Have To Bill of Rights. I think that's about as eye-opening as you can get when it comes to just the simple rights that are often denied our survivors. 
As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe. And you can find us on social media at No Gray Zone RRC on Instagram or Twitter and No Gray Zone on Facebook. There are no excuses when it comes to sexual assault or not having the right response when a survivor discloses. I'm just good at caring too much. I'm just good at caring too much. Too much to ask that you be